Today, we dig into the second half of Pebble in the Sky, and we'll talk about the line between justice and revenge, and how important agency is for finding one's place in life. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. I'm Jacob Yunker. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jason Stark. And we are working our way through the literary universe of Isaac Asimov. We look at the themes of his works and their relevance for today. That's right. And uh, now we are going into our second episode in our two-episode suite on Pebble in the Sky. So, um, y'all read this book in its entirety before we did our first episode, right? Yeah, yes. it's kind of hard to stop halfway through. Yes, yeah, definitely. But, you know, it's like we've got our thoughts formed up on this, um, and we've got a lot to talk about. But before we get into the synopsis of part two, um, last time I talked about, like, first impressions, asked what you what you thought, but like, what were your final impressions on the book as you came to its final pages? As I finished up the book, I really thought, um, I, I hadn't formed an attachment to any of the characters and Asimov kind of ties up the story, but I kind of didn't care that he tied up the story. I was so interested in his, in his, um, in his world building and in the way that he's kind of setting up this galactic empire. And I thought that that was really interesting, but he just with his characters, he doesn't always do something with them. They're just kind of play things. If that makes sense. Yeah. Kind of like looking at a landscape and then you see some goats run through the landscape and then you're back to the landscape and you're like, Oh, that was fun. Yeah. He's like a landscape artist. He's not like a portrait artist. Interesting to think about. Yeah. And I think we've talked before about how really when it comes to Asimov, a lot of the payoff sometimes comes from the big ideas and like the questions. And I do think that sometimes that comes at the cost of um, some of the character building being a little weak at times, you know, and I can't say it's always the case, but it does suffer from it from time to time. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. That being said, I still really enjoyed um I still really enjoyed this landscape and I kind of wanted to hang out more in in this universe universe. I didn't feel like I was done here yet when the story ended. Well cool. Well that's great. Well, um then without further ado, I'm going to read through our synopsis for the material and then we'll jump into our analysis. Two months have passed since the events in Shika. Schwartz has returned to the Marin farm and begun to help with tending to the animals. But the synapsifier treatment has begun to change him. He can think more quickly, youthfully. He has rapidly learned to read and communicate. And most strangely, he has also started to sense people's minds. A mind touch, as he calls it, feeling their intentions, attitudes, and even general proximity. Through his newfound ways of discerning the world around him, he gains the confidence enough during a chess game to ask Gru where he is. The answer is utterly astounding to Schwartz. It is 842 of the Galactic Era, and perhaps some 50 to 100,000 years have passed since Earth was the only world. Earth is an oppressed, radioactive backwater and a societally trapped population forced to euthanize the elderly to sustain itself. Schwartz, who is 62, realizes he has to find a way to evade the 60. He leaves the farm for Shika, but on the way, encounters Natter, the agent from the Society of the Ancients, who he encountered before. Natter has been watching him ever since. He tries to convince Schwartz to come with him, but Schwartz can sense his intentions, and in a moment of panic, reaches into Natter's mind and kills him. Horrified at his abilities, he continues to Shika, and tries to find a job for himself. In the confusion of all the minds around him, however, he is apprehended by the Society for the Ancients. The Society has secret plans involving the Synapsifier, and the High Minister's secretary is convinced that Schwartz, Bell Arverden, Dr. Sheck, and Procurator Ennius are part of a vast anti-Earth conspiracy. 
Arvidan visits the High Minister and is denied access to the radioactive and taboo areas of Earth. He visits Shek as well to ask about the Synapsifier, but is quickly turned away. Secretly, however, Shek's daughter Pola arranges a secret meeting between the two of them, before which Bell and Pola have developed a romance. Shek informs Arvidan of the Ancient's plot. Earth's radioactivity has resulted in certain mutations in Earthmen over the millennia, and also in its microorganisms. The Ancients are planning to release an engineered Earth virus, created with the help of synapsified scientists, that is deadly to off-worlders throughout the galaxy, causing a pandemic that will bring the Empire down with Earth people in a position to take over. And this is going to happen very soon. Arverden agrees to help expose the plot, but in that moment, the three are apprehended by the society. Schwartz, Schecht, Pola, and Arverden are all brought together at the society's Hall of Corrections. They are immobilized by the use of the neuronic whip and left lying in the same room. During this time, the truth of Schwartz, his time travel, his mind reading, is revealed to the other three. Schwartz is convinced that they will all die and is again in despair over the home that he has lost. But the other three convince him to help using his mental powers. When Secretary Balkis confronts them, and as their mobility slowly returns, Schwartz freezes Balkis's body with his mind, allowing him to be disarmed. He then causes Balkis to escort them out of the building and into the nearby Imperial garrison, where they accuse Balkis of treason. While in the safety of the garrison, legal and political forces begin to slow the possibility that the conspirators can be exposed and stopped in time. The zero hour for the launch of the virus arrives, and our heroes assume that all is lost. All except for Schwartz, that is, who is out of the story's picture for a brief period. He secretly uses his mental powers to convince an Imperial military pilot to fly to the virus launch site and destroy it. The plot is averted, and the galaxy is saved. In thankfulness, the galactic government agrees to begin an attempted renewal of Earth's soil and crust. Bell and Pola, now in love, will soon marry, go see the galaxy, and then reside on Earth to help with its renewal. And Schwartz is once again content, understanding his place in the world and galaxy that is now his home. So before we get into the themes, let's talk a little bit about the science, a little bit of what's going on here. Um, I don't think we really got the chance last time to talk about the synapsifier. And I really want to bring this up, especially now that Schwartz's mind reading and everything is coming into the story. So I, I want to take an opportunity to talk a little bit about it. So the synapsifier. Um, like, let's first talk about this discussion on neurology and synapses and all this, Jacob, because this yes, is kind of your wheelhouse, right? Well, okay, yeah, we say wheelhouse, but it is, um, it is definitely an undergrad degree. But I, I did look some looking around and some refreshing of my own memories on on how synapses work and connect and things like that. Um, and it explain in the book, the synapsifier closes the distance between neurons, right? so that they can connect faster and sharper and things like that, right? That, that's what the book describes it as? I think so. So I was, I was wondering about that, and they're not wrong in saying that there's a small gap between synapses um, that the electrical current has to jump in quotes. I say jump in quotes because, so part of the jump in quotes is one neuron releasing a chemical a certain neurotransmitter that is then received by the second neuron as like a code. And then that code sparks another electrical current through the second neuron. So it, it's kind of hard to say that it's one electrical flow from one neuron to the other. It's not like two wires that are both capable of holding electricity. And if you send one through if you send a current through one wire and they're just close enough, it'll jump from one wire to the next and the same current keeps flowing. It's not like that at all. Um, it's more like you have one current jumping to the end of one wire, 
then one wire tells the second wire to start its own current. So are you saying that speeding up the electrical currents is not going to have any effect? Well, the synapsifier says they close the distance between neurons. Oh, I see. So I think what that would do is cause seizures. <laughs> because, because if it's the same current firing through all the neurons all the time, um, then you have nothing to stop one neuron from just firing all the neurotransmitters all the time, nonstop. And Does that, that make would sense? be bad. And that's probably why they had people die in the book who, right. who tried it. Um, because, you know, if you have two open terminals always touching, they're just going to burn each other out. Right. So I think it, like, I'm, I'm making some space that if the neurotransmitters don't have to travel as far, you could speed up thinking technically. Yeah. But I mean, we're, talk, we're talking at... It, Synapses are already basically connected tissue. Right. So to say that we're closing that distance, in my mind, and I could be wrong on this, there might be some other psychologist, neuropsychologists out there that I would really like to hear your opinions from. <laughs> if you're a neurologist, please let us know what you think. But in my opinion, I think we're just causing seizures in people until they're fried. Okay. Well, cool. Thanks for being able to um, offer your input on that because... Other than, like, I don't really know what Asimov's experience was with brain science. I mean, either personally or what the field even looked like mid-20th century. If I'm honest, I don't know what neurology looked like in the mid-20th century either. I was more, I'm, I'm a bit more up to date with some of the systems of psychology, but psychology and neurology are different, are very different. Right. And I suppose it's okay for the synapsifier to just kind of remain a MacGuffin for the story, you know, yeah. it's, it's okay. Um, although there is something that is an interesting, maybe kind of contemporary to us corollary, uh, to what we read about with what the synapsifier does, at least in terms of speeding up the learning capacity, because, um, yes. these days there are actually devices that are like neural stimulators that are intended to increased neuroplasticity and i've seen the use of those well i've heard about the use of those uh as far as the military is concerned like in some cases essentially training um tra training soldiers to be able to draw their pistols more quickly like in terms of rapid draw tests and and training um that they can use neural stimulation to actually speed up the muscle memory um, process so they can do it faster. Also, uh, in terms of uh, people in the military who go home and struggle to reacclimate into daily life and reacclimate into society, uh, that sort of technology actually has been used to help people, say, for example, learn another language. If they want to jump into a career field or something that involves the learning of another language, neural stimulation could help with that. Or, um, yeah, so so it's there are actually things out there that from a from a brain chemistry side of things or a neuroplasticity side of things actually work on this process. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I, I don't know much about it, so I'm gonna I'm gonna immediately go read about that after this <laughs> because that sounds it neuroplasticity is is referring to the adaptability of neurons to correct, change course. Um, build new pathways. Um, essentially, what they're talking about with the synapsifier, learn. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah. If you can, if you, if we can find a way to increase neuroplasticity, I mean, that might even stave off late life dementia and things like that. So, hmm. I heard about this on an episode of a podcast that I listened to called Sleepwalkers, and um, the the concept of the podcast is talking about how artificial intelligence technology is impacting daily life in a lot of different ways that in a lot of ways we don't even see happening. Uh, mm. and yet it's, it's a major, uh, a major force of, of changing things in society. So uh, I recommend the podcast, uh, sleepwalkers. And in one of those episodes, they talk about this kind of technology. So, Very cool. um, 
But it's another thing entirely for the synapsifier to allow a person to receive and transmit um, brainwaves telepathically. Yes, ESP, extrasensory perception. That'd be fun. So I don't even want to... There, Well, I should say, there's a part of me that is highly resistant to even going there as far as what it means for for the brain to suddenly be able to do that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So electromagnetic fields, um, which is what they were talking about, uh, the mind touch being, don't really affect the brain because electromagnetic currents need a metal conductor to produce and interact with things. Oh, I, I, I see where this whole thing is going, okay? Really, the claim that Asimov is making here is not faulty science. It's actually that the universe is now populated by robots. Ooh, and that's okay. why you can speed everything up with the synapsifier. Yes. No, I okay. don't know. I mean, I'll take that. They're all androids. This is kind of hearkening back a little bit to what we've already talked about with robots like Dave and Herbie. Um, Dave with his positronic fields and controlling the yes. controlling the finger robots, yes. and obviously Herbie, who ostensibly through these positronic fields as well could could touch minds. Yes. So that's my new conspiracy theory for the Asimov universe: is that it is actually just all robots all the time. Okay, yeah, no, that that satisfies my need to have robots again because I already missed them. <laughs> I'm just gonna jump on board with that without hesitating. You you should hesitate at the conspiracy theories. Just, you know, word to the wise, given the political climate today. <laughs> you should hesitate. Uh-oh. Don't jump theory. on board. All right. And so last time, something we also, we did mention that the book does have a lot of allusions to uh, biblical themes and phraseology and historical context that have to do with ancient Israel, ancient Judea. And they just keep coming in the second half. Um, I mean, like, we literally have the high minister of the society say that the people of Earth are a stiff-necked people. You know, it does not get any more on the nose than that. Like, this is very much supposed to be a, a, a corollary kind of analogy that's being drawn in the book. And I don't know. I mean, by the end of the book, it feels... So on the nose, it almost feels kind of ham-fisted. I, I don't really know whether or not you would see this kind of thing today because it almost feels like it goes, I don't know, maybe too far. Do you think it, it, it plays on this too much? I think maybe you have an advantage, Jason, because you are doing your PhD in biblical studies. So these stories, especially the Jewish part of the stories, are so intimately wrapped up in, you know, what you do every day, all day. So fair enough. You know, I picked up on some of them. I definitely got that flavor, um, but I didn't get. I didn't get ham-fisted. I just got like this has a definite flavor of, of like a Jewish biblical kind of background. I agree with Stephanie. A lot of people, especially if you work on a farm more often than you read the Bible, would hear stiff-necked and go, "Okay, yeah, they're obstinate," and move on. Yeah, I know a lot of horses that are stiff-necked. So I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's too heavy-handed, but it's enough. To make you wonder why that verbology and and make you go look at the illusion. Sure. I think that okay. I think it was really good on Asimov's part, not too much. Okay. The other thing that I see, it's not an overt reference. This is not like um like direct phraseology or historical corollary. But if you ask me, I almost feel like this book feels like the book of Esther, like turned inside out. Hmm. And if you're if you're listening here and you're not familiar with the book of Esther, it's a book of the Old Testament in which um, it takes place in ancient Persia during um, during Israel's exile out of the out of the land of Canaan. And Esther is a young woman from a Jewish family who is taken into the king's household and is made wife of the king. And it's not known to the king in the story that she is an Israelite. 
And so um, there is this plot that is made by one of the king's um, by one of the king's officers to basically exterminate uh, the Israelite people wherever they are throughout the Persian Empire. And this plot is exposed, and the people, uh, the Israelite people scattered throughout the empire, are empowered to defend themselves from those who would attack them. And it's also the reason given for a particular Jewish festival that exists to this day called the Festival of Purim, that, that that's the reason why this festival has come to be. And so I, I don't know, just as I was reading through it, in this case, it's not the power of empire that is being like leveraged against the people group. In this case, in Pebble in the Sky, it's the oppressed group that is this time like conspiring to bring destruction on all the outsiders. And it's this small group of people, including Schwartz, who is right there in the right place in the right time. Um, you know, this character who arrives through very unordinary circumstances, who acts on behalf of the outsiders in order to save them. And between that and all of the Old Testament and biblical allusions, it just felt very much like we were seeing something kind of Esther-like. Esther, but backwards, Rista. Yeah, I can see... But when you've laid it out that like that, I feel like it makes sense. But also, you know, that I think with Esther, I'm not sure if that's the first time that something like that has happened to the Israelite people as a whole, but it is something that continues to happen kind of over and over again. Like the persecution kind of follows them wherever they are in exile uh, over the centuries, really. So it's it seems to be a repeated Jewish type story, but you're right. It is flipped inside out where the oppressed people are kind of fighting back. Okay, well, this seems like an okay time to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about some of the big, broad themes that we saw in play in the section of the book. This episode of Galaxy is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the number one source for audiobooks and also offers podcasts, guided wellness programs, Audible originals, and more. They have thousands of titles, and that includes every Asimov novel that we will be discussing on Galaxy. From Foundation to iRobot to the end of eternity, Audible has you covered. In prep for our episodes, I have primarily been listening to these books, and Jacob has been listening during his to and from work commutes as well. Whether commuting, exercising, or just relaxing at home, Audible is a great way to experience new books as well as your all-time favorites. You can start a 30-day free trial that includes a free title of your choice and access to Audible's content through the Audible Plus catalog. Visit audibletrial.com slash galaxypodcast to start your free trial today. That's audibletrial.com slash galaxypodcast. Okay, one of the overarching things that I saw at play in this half of the book was really um, the need for knowledge and understanding that a person has to have in order to acclimate to a new place. Um, we talked before in the last episode about how really Schwartz kind of represents an almost immigrant type character who finds himself in a new place and has to understand his his place in it. Um, and really, you know, I think the synapsifier kind of represents in in this case the the gaining of knowledge and understanding as he begins to understand what's around him. Also, I mean, the need for someone who can actually come alongside and help in that process, too, because um, we have examples of people, whether they're like low stakes characters or high stakes characters who end up coming alongside him and helping him out in one way, shape or form, giving him new information, giving him things that he can go on. I, I mean, every everyone from the cabbies in the diner who help him eat, uh, help him get a meal to eat. All the way over to Gru, who he finally trusts enough, who Schwartz trusts enough 
to really start asking some questions about where he's at. And Gru has to exercise the patience in the midst of in the midst of his kind of bewilderment at Schwartz's questions to accommodate him and help him out. Yeah, patience with quotation marks, but yes, patience nonetheless. Um, Which, by the way, I love that scene. It is, I, I believe it's the best scene in the entire book, the chess game between Schwartz and Gru. Um, I just love how it unfolds. Actually, I believe that the moves that are described in that chess game, Asimov actually took them from a classic um, like real game that had been played out at some point in the past between two um, grandmasters. Like he reproduced that that game. Yeah, I saw that fun fact somewhere that it was some, you know, world championship or something like that. That's pretty cool. Jacob, how did you feel about the chess game? I was I was bored out of my gourd. Oh man. Um can, well I understand I understand the use of actual gameplay, especially on a, in a game of chess, to illustrate Schwartz's piecing together where how he where he is, how he got there, and who who he is and has been. Like how, how he can be a man out of time and how he can be a man who misses his homeland and how he immediately feels like a foreigner instead of just someone with amnesia. Um, I, I really do get how the illustration could work. I, I don't like reading paragraph after paragraph of chess. Fair enough. Yes, that is. <laughs> I will say that at times it gets a little monotonous. Uh, yeah, the whole, the whole chapter was like three quarters chess. And I again... I don't mind it, but I'm here for robots and androids. All right. I looked it up, and the chess game is, I think, a replica of Boris Verlinsky versus Grigory, Grigory with an I, Levenfish Those from are some 1924. Intense, those are some intense names. Uh, yes, they sound like men who are good at chess. <laughs> Let me say, though, why I think that scene is my favorite. Yeah, and please not, do, Jason. It's not so much about the chess game. I think it has to do more with the theme that we're talking about, with the gaining of knowledge and the understanding of where your place is. I mean, on the one hand, it's not only entertaining to get this world building aspect out of it. Like, I feel like all the details are very interesting to figure out where we are in the story. Um, but the fact that Schwartz finally has the answers that he's been looking for all the while he's been kind of bumbling around in kind of a fog knowledge wise because he doesn't know where he is he does not know what has happened to him and i find it an incredibly satisfying moment where the pieces fall into place for him because he is now like a he is now an equipped character he's already become equipped in terms of learning how to communicate and learning how to ask questions, but now he has the orientation and the context. I mean, obviously, if you've jumped thousands of years into the future, it's not just like that uh, to have complete orientation where you are, but he now is equipped to be more of an agent in the story than he ever has been before. So I found it incredibly satisfying for that reason. And I will also say this was a later book that I read in, as far as all of these different books go. So maybe one part of it is that I feel like until this point in the story, I was looking and looking for where to connect this story into the larger narrative universe. And from that moment on, I was like, okay, I know. All right, here's, here's where it fits. So maybe there's a little bit of a specific thing there for me because I, I read it a little bit later. later on. Yeah, I, I was able to fit it more so into my, I, I was now more oriented in the book relative to Asimov's narrative universe. So I have, I have a little bit of an extra connection to it, I guess. That's really interesting, actually. That's really interesting. Um, I actually yeah, have another theory about why, you know, the two of you have reacted to the chess game differently. Because you guys approach the world like your friends, so you understand each other very well, which is very funny sometimes. But <laughs> like you just exchange a look and you both have the same idea, which is super weird. But because um, I've never seen guys do that before. <laughs> Girls do it all the time, but I've never seen guys do that. Anyway, I digress. Um, 
Jason is approaching this very much with his brain first, like very cerebrally. And that's really interesting because he pulls out the themes really easily and is like, oh, this specific theme means this. And, um, and I think that's how Asimov writes, is he writes with his brain and, and not necessarily with the rest of the parts of himself. So the things that come out, you pick them up more easily when you're just very cerebral about it. Whereas Jacob is, you, I read you come heart. at things differently. <laughs> yes. You're, you're very kind and soft and uh, you, you love things gently. We, we joke that Jacob's a giant golden retriever, but hardly a joke. Yeah. You come into the story like a child and I don't think Asimov is, is writing for children as much. He's writing for chess players and you're coming in as, you know, this is a playground and that's, it's a really interesting thing that you guys get similar things out of it, but they're also like different shades. So I think that's, yeah, I definitely see, see what you're talking about because Mm -hmm. for me, that chapter about chess, I really, I didn't feel very different while the chess was being played. I felt really different as I saw like Schwartz's context hit and he found identity. So relationally, yeah, you're right. I reacted to the relational part. Oh my goodness. Schwartz gets it. Schwartz is finding his spot. He's, he's, he's finally at home. He's finally at home. Hmm. And I can see how that'd be very different from um, Jason. Who's, Oh, I see where this piece is in the universe now. Although I do think that, you know, I'm actually really happy that we come to these stories from different places. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, not um, that at all. I, I feel like if we all thought about these stories in exactly the same way, that this podcast would be way less interesting. So I yes. like it the way that it is. <laughs> and so I'm cool with you not liking the chess scene. It's fine. It's less about not liking the chess scene and more like not liking the chess. The scene was fun. The the chess was less fun. But you like chess. You just don't like I, reading descriptions of people playing chess. I will chess. gladly play chess. I have my own um, hand-hewn rock chess set, and I would rather play it than read that again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's on. As soon as we don't have to socially distance anymore, we're going to play some chess. Got it. <laughs> I think the other one that I want to talk about, um, just for sake of time, is it, it connects to this, what we've been talking about a little bit with him um, finding his place for Schwartz. And that's really, I think, the need for purpose and the need for significance. Because Schwartz spends so much of this book as a person who is very far from home. And, and it's ironic because he's not far from home. He is actually in the same place that he always was as far as being on the planet Earth. But in all the ways that really matter, he spends so much of his time being really far away from home, even close up to the end of the book. Um, he vacillates between like despair and not even really caring if he lives anymore on the one hand over to like agency and feeling like he can actually do something with his life now that he knows where he's at. Um, But he really finds his place once he learns to embrace the future as his home now. Like he realizes that he can't go back and he realizes that he has to make something out of the life that he has. And it's why that he, I think kind of awkwardly, as far as the story goes, heads for Shika and tries to find a job. You know, it's like awkward. It is. I mean, he's just killed Natter with his mind touch and he's like, well, I guess I'll go try to find some work. You know, it's it's really quite odd, I think, as far as the writing is concerned. But I think it does illustrate the fact that he's now that he understands something of his surroundings, he can go try to actually live in this place and exist in this place. Yeah. I, th- I thought it made sense that he just kind of continued on his way because it's he I would assume he's somewhere between shock at I just killed a person and some sort of relief of, oh, I kind of understand a little bit more of what this mind touch is and what I could do with myself and I'm feeling safer because I can protect myself. And as you have been saying, like he fits into the world now. So it's probably somewhere between 
just all of that going on at the same time. He just, you know, what's next? But, you know, to do the next thing that you have on your list. If you can't process emotionally, you just keep working. Yeah, and he even talks to himself about like, hey, I used to be textile. So let's see if he, like he's going back to what he knows. Right. So he's trying to find something textile, which doesn't work out. I think that there is, you know, talking about not working out when he gets um, apprehended by the society. And um, then when all the other main characters also get arrested and they're all together, um, kind of approaching this climactic moment of the story, I think there's another level actually about purpose and significance that comes there. Like it really only comes, I think, at the end of the book. It's one thing for Schwartz to be able to say, okay, well, I can live here and go try to find a job or something and, and, and make a living. At the end of the book, that is when he finally, he finally actualizes the earth of the future as his earth. He finally comes to a place where he is willing to, to fight for it and defend the people of the planet, care about them. Oh, and to, I mean, really to care about the people of the galaxy. That's the thing. It's not just him finding his place on Earth. It's really finding his own place in the galaxy and finding a way to to make it his own. And so that, again, I find that to be an incredibly satisfying moment and progression for Schwartz's character. That's why I think I find him to be the 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 main character, like the hero of the story, which we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, I I really like it. It's one of the reasons that I love this book so much. All right. Well, are we ready to move on to worldview type questions? I think so. All yes. right. Awesome. I think we're beginning to see a theme here in the worldview questions that Asimov is co consistently bringing up. And he's consistently brought up this question of power. Who has power? And especially this idea of who has power over me or over us and our society. And then specifically in this book, how do we react when people have power over us? So we get this varied response to uh, people being oppressed on Earth. So like Pola spends a lot of time weeping. Um, she, she spends a lot of time in fear which we'll talk about the character of Pola in just a little bit, because I have some, some qualms and some stipulations with, with her character. But she spends a lot of time weeping versus Arvidarn, who is not used to oppression and reacts with anger and arrogance when he gets to Earth and they assume that he's an Earth man, versus the radicals who are attempting to take power back violently. Um, or Schecht and Schwartz, who are using their intelligence as power. Um, you know, they're getting power through thought, power through knowing more than other people. I would also throw in despair as well when it comes to Schwartz. Like we mentioned yeah. a minute ago, like it's not always someone who's exercising power over him. Sometimes it's just like the massive state of things as far as his situation, but he. I would say his his response is often one of despair and just kind of like giving up. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting, though, that Asimov keeps bringing up this idea of power, like it is something that keeps coming back. Yeah, and and I think Schwartz is also an interesting twist on that, too, because he is, on the one hand, like the Society of the Ancients has has got all these main characters in the palm of their hand. And meanwhile, they're dealing with someone who, on the one hand, they have no idea that all of their conspiracy theories um, all actually hinge in reality on something they could have never counted on with someone who's jumped into the future and suddenly mm -hmm. been interjected into this whole situation. But ironically, he is an actual ancient. Like, we're, yeah, yeah he is, he's the real deal. Like he's not some, he's, he's not their idea of what someone from the past is, but he's actually the real McCoy. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting that his, you know, the sort of power, intelligence as power 
um, comes out and checked in being a scientist. And as a scientist, he's got this like role in society. But with, Sh- with Schwartz, literally, his mind is his power. So he is able to sense the uh, movements of others and the intentions of others, as well as kill, as well as restrain, as well as control. Um, He's also able to look below the surface of people's intentions. Mm -hmm. Like he can see their actions, but down below, he can see what's really down beneath them. And that, you know, he's exercising power over people by, on the one hand, exposing their, their plans and their plots. Like in the case of Natter, like he just flat out says, Hey, I know you're trying to actually kill me, um, and exposes him. He also exposes all of the hidden prejudices that people are feeling toward one another, like his his way of of reaching into people. That's an interesting exercise of power, too. Yeah, absolutely. To know to know things versus to knowing people. So maybe you could say that Asimov is claiming knowing people deeply, knowing their intentions gives you some sort of power over them. And I would say. You know, that might be true, and but people definitely react to it, and they react a lot of times in, you know, in violence, in pushing back, in some sort of resistance, or in, like, putting walls up. Like, if you poke someone's sore spot, they're definitely going to react. And the thing, I think th- my last thought about this power is the thing with power is so often we react to people trying to take power from us or to take power over us by then trying to take power back ourselves. So we act with the same force that someone is pushing towards us. And actually, um, there's a really clear horseback riding lesson in this. So when you ride a horse, if you are really strong with the horse, if you pull on them, often what they will do is brace against you. So we tell our riders, you cannot have a steady pressure all the time you have to give a little bit you have to be soft or you have to follow with your arms you have to follow their mouth you can't just react in the same way you have to kind of get around it a little bit i don't know what the ultimate point that i'm trying to make here somebody help me out well well i i think it's it's one thing to say if you feel like someone's taking power away from you you try and take it back in the same like either force or means or more amount Mm-hmm. That's one thing, um, but I think what's more common is trying to take back more power than was taken from you in the first place, um, because the point of power is to feel safe and to feel like you can't you have a, a a control on the situation and the situation does not have a control on you. So if, uh, if the a point of taking part, power, yeah. So if someone starts to take your power then the response is usually, okay, I need to take so much power back that they don't even start to do that again. Yeah. Is that where we kind of start to approach the threshold between like the legitimate need for justice on the one hand and really on the other hand, just revenge on the other side of that threshold? Yes. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. It's definitely a spiraling cycle. As you can probably imagine it in your head, if one person's looking for power and another person tries to take it and the first person tries to take more, then the second person tries to take more back and forth. You're just in a struggle. You're, You're in just a, in a battle. And an escalation is always happening in that situation and you end up in a battle. And yeah, I, it's, it's hard because if you want real righteous justice, I think, the uh, and this is really just a Jacob opinion, um, I think it has to be done not out of a sense of need of safety or a need of rectification in my own sense. It needs to be done from a higher, more separate level from yourself. Yeah, I would say that there is a need to recognize that power is not for me. Power is for taking care of and blessing others. Yes, and mm. in that, you find your own, like, there's security in that. So you can't find your security in power. You have to use the power to take care of others. 
And yeah. that's where you get this escalation is, is having that mixed up. And ultimately, it's what Schwartz ends up doing. He ends up using the power yeah. not to exact revenge. I mean, in a certain way, he can't exact revenge. He's just kind of stuck where he is. But he uses it to really bring safety to the entirety of the galaxy. And in the end, he ends up helping out the people of Earth in a way that the society never could have. Way to bring it back around, Jason. Yeah. Way to just plug that in. All right, the second thing I want to talk about is this romance between Pola yeah, been, and Arvidarn. We've been and, dancing around it. I so. know. We need to talk about the romance. And I also particularly want to talk about the difference in their characters, in the way that their characters are built. So my initial impression of the romance was... Um, Actually, me continuing to flip pages and go through chapters and say, I am not down for this romance. I am not down for this romance, you know, kind of more and more frantically as we get through. And there's this sweet scene at the end that I was like, okay, I'm still not down for the romance, but this is, this is better. Tell me about why you were not down for the romance. I was not down for the romance. Hmm. I, I really don't like Arvidarn. He's kind of a jerk. And I really don't like that um, Pola spends the whole time weeping. So she's this very flat character. And the way that she gets interacted with is mostly other people pushing her around and telling her what to do. You know, if, if it was written in such a way that that was her character and it was more nuanced and and we got some more backstory and like, you know, maybe the guys from the Empire killed her mother or something like that. So she has this legitimate reason to be afraid. You know, she is an oppressed person, but it's just this very flat, you know, native woman is afraid kind of yeah. vibe. And I wanted, I, you know, that could be something to explore because, you know, historically native women have been oppressed in, in ways that they don't to men. But, you know, the problem is when you get this very flat line of a character and you don't get an in-depth character. Yeah, she definitely, I would say she's, she could be most easily described as kind of like the damsel in distress kind of, um, kind of trope. Yeah. And it's okay to have a damsel in distress as long as there's a legitimate reason for her to be in distress and she's written as a full character in distress, if that makes sense. And the same with the white knight trope. Like, I'm okay with a white knight. It's good to have strong men who have power, who are able to help other people. I love that. But they can't just be written as, you know, an arrogant jerk who happens to sweep this girl off her feet because he has power. If you ask me, I feel like when we look at the relationship between Belle and Pola, one of the things that I think that that relationship serves perhaps most clearly to me is the whole issue of prejudice and, um, and, and prior understandings that need to be challenged when it comes to understanding other people, other mm -hmm. cultures that, um, there's so much, almost like too much of Belle's inner monologue thinking about like, oh, I can't believe that I'm attracted to this girl from Earth, and, and but I am attracted. And oh, man, how yeah, do I deal with this? he's trying to do the Fitzwilliam Darcy thing of like, but your family is not suitable, except right. it's not romantic. And, you know, and then near the end of the book, we have Sh Schwartz kind of reveal the deep down remaining prejudice that still is in Arvidan as someone from the serious sector, try as he might to overcome it. He still deals with it on like a subconscious level. And so, you know, if you ask me, I feel like, yes, Pola's character is, is quite flat and, um, and seems like more of a vehicle toward things. Mm -hmm. If anything though, I feel like their, their relationship kind of highlights that, that motif of the story in maybe the most direct way. Yeah, I would agree that that is the, the purpose that their relationship serves. And as far as the story writing goes, it's kind of, 
it makes sense for the story. But maybe, Jason, I think you've hit on something that bothers me about Asimov, and it's the fact that he uses his characters right. in that way. Like, the characters serve the world building and the theme building. Right, and it they, always, like they don't stand on their own. Yeah, they don't stand on their own, and there's always just this little bit of objectification going on of all the characters. And, you know, it is a story, so they're not real people. So there's less of a problem. But to have characters based on humans, or they're supposed to be humans, that feels just a <laughs> little... You mean like you're, you're still thinking that they're androids and robots, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, you know, my conspiracy <laughs> theory aside, it feels a little... I think he objectifies his characters in a way that I'm not super comfortable with, if that makes sense. Sure. They're all typified and not people yeah he like uses them to put together his little you know the question he wants to ask and i'll be interested to talk about this more as we go through other books too because the question is you know it's like is this is this just about the idea that this is how he uses characters um and that's all on the deliberate level is this because he struggles with character development and actually fleshing out characters, or is it some mixture of the two? So mm-hmm. that'll be interesting to look at as we go forward. Absolutely. Yeah. I felt like with iRobot, it was much better. In a lot okay. Of ways. Yeah. But um, yeah, none, none, nonetheless, I'm here. I want to be in this universe a lot longer. So yeah. I'm really excited. But to rein it back to the romance, you know, uh-huh. um, okay. Aeneas and his wife actually have a cute, like romance going on and the couple at the farm they have something actually going on that where they're equals but these two bell and art bell and pola didn't have the same kind of equality going in so i think that bothered me okay yeah I i think when i was watching their relationship it was something it made me feel like yes i would see this in real life but no i wouldn't cheer for this in real life if that makes any sense you could do better, girl. You could do better. Yeah. Well, like they both, it like if I when I get excited to see a relationship in real life, I'm excited because they both treat each other in a way that is like just abundant kindness for one another, in the ways they both individually need it, and um, that's what makes me cheer for relationships in in real life. But what I see more often than not is two people who would rather just be more comfortable with the big questions they don't want to ask. Like if there's somebody who's constantly afraid of not making enough money, they just go and marry someone who's rich. And then that's the end of their relationship. Like I see that happen in real life. Everyone does um, to some extent. And I felt like this, this relationship reminded me of that. So it was hard to cheer for it because Pola's getting the safety. She quote unquote thinks she not wants needs. That was never really clearly written out. What is Bell getting? And Bell's getting well. She's getting. He's getting the dame. He, he saw. He saw butter. He felt butterflies when he first saw her, and that was it. And that's just like a really, I don't know, objectifying way of viewing women as a man. You know, he's you can't marry someone brain. you just met, Anna. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> I love the Frozen reference. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's what it felt like, though. I felt like Frozen dealt with this exact problem in five minutes. I definitely want to concede to the point that the relationship was definitely trying to get at the underlying prejudices problem. Friends can still overcome prejudice. Friends can overcome prejudice, though. All right, so the last question that I have is, who do you think the hero of the story is? We're still not settled on this, are we? I technically I'm not comfortable saying anybody is. I'm going to technically say Schwartz um, because... Of the last, what, three or four chapters where he goes from, nah, man, screw the universe, I'll die with it, to maybe I'll save the universe. Or galaxy, I should definitely say galaxy, not universe. (laughs) Screw the galaxy, I could die with it because he's in despair. And then he goes and saves the galaxy. I think that would classify him as the hero, but I'm willing to be debated with. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board. You know, I think it's Schwartz. I mean... Look, I know last episode we talked about the fact that he is not that strong of a protagonist until the very end 
of the book. Yeah, he doesn't um, do anything until no. like the last two chapters. He gets his bearings the whole time. And then once he has them, he's a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, but it takes him the whole book. Like, there's no it movement. Does. And the fact of the matter is, is that we don't even see the action. It's like narrated for us. And it just kind of pops in at the end. It's very like deus ex machina sort of like, here we are yeah. at the end and and the galaxy is saved. Yeah. And And so- all right, I will concede he's not an incredibly strong protagonist, but we're with him from the very beginning of the story to the very end of the story. We have the book like bracketed with the poem, Grow Old Along With Me, The Best Is Yet To Be, The Last Of Life For Which The First Was Made. That's on his mind. Oh, I do want to offer a little correction. Um, that poem is actually called Rabbi Ben Ezra, written by Robert Browning Oh, okay. in the All 1800s. Right. We had mentioned the poem last time, um, and I did not read through the entire poem. I did find it, but after a while, I was like, man, this is a long poem. It is so, a really long poem, yeah. Um, but with, anyway, so we are with him in his perspective for so much of the story, and yes, he doesn't, he doesn't do, but it's like his being is so prominent in the story and his journey is so prominent in the story. I feel like we're supposed to be rooting for him. You know, uh, you know, not like we're not supposed to be rooting for our other main characters, but I feel like if there is a character that we're supposed to be rooting for and tracking along with, as far as the journey is concerned, it would be Schwartz. Yeah. I'll, I'll concede that with the literary, you know, buffers, if you look closely at them, they all do point to Schwartz. But I would also say, as a reader, the experience of the book doesn't bring out, you know, a character that you're like, yes, I want to follow this character through a book series or through, you know, you don't really want to follow him. He's just kind of there. That's true. I mean, granted, I don't know whether or not you have to be able to... um argue that you you want to see this person in another book well follow his story yeah i still liked i still liked where we ended up i think i think you're right i would have i think i would have rather gone through where like we had the courtroom scene and then he got asked to leave i think i'd rather have taken on that perspective from schwartz's end instead of staying in the courtroom and then having the courtroom narrated later because i think we got all the important parts out of the courtroom before Schwartz left. Which courtroom? You mean like the hearing with, yeah. with Ennius? Yeah. Sorry. Okay, yeah. I say yeah. courtroom. My brain kind of turned it into a Judge Judy room thing. That would be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, but all right. But I, anyway, I, I get I what you're rather, saying. Yeah. I think I would have rather followed the action with the hero, Schwartz, um, and wrap up later. So Schwartz. All right, I will, I will concede that that's how it's written, but I don't like it. Two and a half okay. votes Schwartz. And if, uh, if you, the listener, would like to cast a different vote, you just let us know. <laughs> Absolutely. And in whether it's about who the hero of the story is or any of our thoughts about this book or your own thoughts, we would really, really love to hear uh, what you think. Uh, we want to hear from you, the listener, and have a conversation with you because um, hopefully if you're listening, you're either reading the books along with us or you have read the books. And so we want this to be a really interesting conversation between more than just the three of us. Yeah, so don't forget to email us at contact at galaxypodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook as The Galaxy Podcast. And if you head to galaxypodcast.com, you can learn a lot about us. You can read our little bio section. You can hear all of our episodes for free. And also you can find all the links necessary really to subscribe on your favorite podcast app of choice. So um, please head there. Please send us an email or a shout out or a Facebook message and get with us. We have really enjoyed talking about Pebble in the Sky and we look forward to the next book that we're going to tackle. So thanks for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed what you heard, and uh, we do hope that you would subscribe also so that you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. And this has been Galaxy. Galaxy.